A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. Okay, so here's a story you probably heard and a story you have not. Remember in uh, 2018 when Hawaiians got that alert on their phones saying that a ballistic missile was inbound, headed for Hawaii, this is not a drill, seek immediate shelter. People scrambled to find places to hide. They put their kids in storm drains. It seemed completely plausible that a missile was on the way because this was after months of President Trump and North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un threatening each other with nuclear destruction, fire, and fury. Okay, so that is the story you know. Here's the one you don't. When the alert came, I was at my house up on my lawn. My first thought was, wow, I'm going to view history and then get wiped off the map. This is Mike McFarland, and he figured he'd be viewing history because his lawn is in a part of Oahu that overlooks Pearl Harbor, which is where he figured the missile was going to land. There's still an active military base there. So he grabs his cat to bring her inside, flips on TV and radio. The same alert, incoming missile is everywhere, which makes it more real and more terrifying. He props up an iPad at a window and points it at Pearl Harbor to live stream whatever is about to happen, which he admits. Like, I'm not rational. I, I just got the news my world was going to end. Um, now I have about 15 minutes to live in my mind. And he starts thinking about I, his life I thought about my and his grandfather, and who died when he was little, and, and some whiskey of his grandfather's that he still had somewhere. So I went and grabbed, I found this thing, it's been up in the closet, and it's a beautiful bottle. And I took a big drink and I toasted my grandfather and said, okay, goodbye, this is it. And then I read this this article once that how you survive a nuclear blast, and it just kind of came out of nowhere from the dark reaches of my mind. It's when the nuclear thing comes, you're supposed to go in a bathtub and cover yourself up with the, um, a blanket. So I took my cat in there, I you know had my phone in there, covered myself up, and just laid there and just waited. And by the way, know, and no offense to Mike. Again. Going into your bathtub will not protect you uh, from a nuclear blast. But, you know, it's funny where your mind goes when you think you just have minutes to live. I think I had the moment that a lot of people think about, but let me tell you, it's different when it happens. It's like, okay, I'm going to die. I'm going to die right here. And my life just sort of came rushing, you know, in front of my eyes. It's like, okay, what am I... What am I proud of? What I'm sorry about? And it, I thought about Lynn. I thought about the last um, you know, girlfriend I had, and it, it wasn't a it wasn't a pretty breakup. And I felt they broke up maybe six months before this, after a year together. And and I thought, okay, well, I'll just send a text to Lynn, um, and just tell her goodbye and tell her how important she was in my life, and you know, love my life. And so I did. I sent that. The exact words of the text. Lynn, I just got word that a nuclear missile on its way to Honolulu. I'm not sure where you are, or if you'll even read this, but I thought of you. I wanted to let you know that looking back, you were the love of my life. If it is in fact over in a few minutes, thank you for the time we spent together. Then he lays there and waits. Before long, 38 minutes after the original alert, he and everybody else learn there's no incoming missile. And I have this, I don't know if I can use this word on your station, but oh, 
blank moment, it, it's like, oh, this is really embarrassing. It's like, I'm not dead. And I sent this message. Lynn would not see this message for hours because right when the alert came over, she was actually on the runway at Inoue Airport in Honolulu on a flight headed to California to look at colleges with her son, who saw the first alert on his phone. He was terrified, saying, my dad is dead, my friends are dead, I'm going to war, mom, our country's going to war, this is World War III, ghost white, his hands are sweaty. And I'm consoling him, but in my mind as an adult, I'm like, okay, pilots, just expletive take off, just expletive take off, do not listen to air traffic control, you know, just go, please just go plane. It's not until they land five hours later that Lindsay's Mike's text. Today, she remembers just one sentence of that text, the key sentence. It said, um, you were the love of my life. And what did you think when you saw that? I think that our, we ended our relationship, for me, probably a little bit too abruptly. And, you know, I felt that perhaps there were more things to explore so she was glad to see it. She wrote him back. Let's talk. And when we got back to Hawaii, she and Mike met up. Hung out a bunch of times to see how it felt. And then, they got back together. Because that text, sent from a bathtub, under a blanket, you were the love of my life. Do you think you ever would have said this to her if not for the incoming nuclear attack? Oh, absolutely not. A- absolutely not. At that moment, in that moment... I was, I was truly, it, it changed for me. It was nicer this time, being together. They were better friends, better at talking through problems. They built a massive garden together, raised nasturtiums and tons of vegetables, took care of animals at an animal rescue place. But they had their differences, and it didn't last. After maybe six months, they decided to split up, on friendly terms. Lynn says she's glad they tried. I would say I was definitely glad for the chance for us to give it one more shot. Yeah, it's like you got to run the science experiment again just to be sure you got the same result. (laughs) I suppose. Can I ask, Mm -hmm. do you think he he ever would have reached out if he didn't think he was going to die in a nuclear attack? I, wow. Um... Hmm. I don't know, but I may have reached out to him. But, wow, that's a great question. I actually asked him, do you want to know what he said? Yeah. He said, absolutely, he never would have texted you that if he didn't think he was going to die. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, it makes you wonder if perhaps those words weren't real. You were the love of my life. I don't think that if someone is the love of your life, that you just let it go. So Hmm. perhaps he just did it in the spur of the moment. Mike says no. He says he meant what he said. It was real. He just figured they were done before that moment came that accidentally ended up bringing them back together. It's so interesting to think about, like, like there, there really is nothing like a deadline, you know? Exactly. 
and and you know you can miss a deadline and get fired or whatever but this you know this, this deadline i was gonna die right i mean i it was like the ultimate deadline i guess is the best way to say that right mm-hmm. it's, it was the ultimate deadline and i i wish you know going forward there was a way for everybody to plug into that moment where okay you've got 15 minutes to truly fix things But today on our program, people trying to fix things at the very last minute. It is the way that so many things happen. Too many things. Just this week, it seemed like the United States was going to miss one of its very last chances to get anywhere near the 2030 climate goals to hold the Earth's temperature rise at 1.5 degrees Celsius. And then, not even at the 11th hour. It was after the clock had run out. Senator Joe Manchin did a turnaround and agreed to legislation that would cut emissions. Why is it always like this? Today on our program, we observe the power of a crushing, impeding deadline to focus the mind and lead to action. From WBEZ Chicago, this is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Aquan, a funny thing happened on the way to the quorum. So, a bunch of people in a small town, Croydon, New Hampshire, population 800, Wake up one morning, not with an imaginary missile heading towards them, but something that felt, I don't know, dire, with a deadline they never saw coming. Sarah Gibson of New Hampshire Public Radio tells what happened. This story starts at a school budget meeting. In Croydon, barely anyone goes to these. Even the local TV guy who sometimes films town meetings did not show up this year. So there's not even a recording. But I'm going to tell you about it because what happened that day triggered a very strange series of events. The meeting takes place at the Croydon Town Hall, an old white building with tall windows and a big, drafty room. There's an American flag from the 1800s framed on the wall, some built-in pews, and a bunch of folding chairs. Tom Moore walks in. He's 43 years old, big red beard, teaches high school math and woodworking, and has three little kids. Tom's been on the Croydon School Board for years, but this is his last day. Doesn't expect anything dramatic to happen. He'd carve some wooden pens as goodbye gifts for his colleagues on the board. And as I walk in, I register my name and I get handed a pamphlet and I don't really glance at it. He sits down. Everything seems normal. One of the townspeople in the audience is Jim Peschke, who knows this is not going to be normal. Jim is kind of a budget nerd, obsessed with the school budget. It's the town's biggest expense by a lot. This year, it's $1.7 million, the highest it's ever been. And every year, Jim comes in with a proposal to shrink it. I, in years past, believe I've brought up $20,000 cuts that weren't approved because they were barbaric, in the words of the opponents. Jim's an electrical engineer, a transplant from the Midwest. He and his wife pride themselves on having homeschooled their kids rather than send them to public school. A thing to know about this budget meeting, it's not just to talk about the proposed school budget. The way things work here is that whoever shows up gets to actually vote on what the budget should be. This has been the approach in Croydon, really most of small town New Hampshire, since the 1800s. It's a relic that most people no longer participate in. Today at the town hall, attendance is low, about 40 people. The meeting starts, and Tom finally looks down at that pamphlet. 
The title is Budget or Ransom. And I go, oh, what is this? This is crazy. But as I'm looking at that, people are starting to get really upset about how much we're paying the principal and the superintendent and about violins and snowshoes. And there just seems to be a lot of people kind of up in arms. The snowshoes and violins paid for entirely with grants. But to some people here, it felt extravagant and wasteful. It's like if you wanted to design an instrument that could be easily broken by second and third graders, it would be the violin. This is Ian Underwood. He's the guy who wrote that pamphlet. Ian's a member of the Free State Project, a movement of libertarians who 20 years ago started to move to New Hampshire with the goal of getting elected to local office and creating a barely regulated, barely taxed utopia of sorts. They're becoming a more serious political force with wins across the state. The majority leader in the House of Representatives, he moved here as a free stater. Ian has lived here for about 15 years on a dirt road above the Croydon schoolhouse. He thinks public school is a failure. One of the high schools down the road has really low test scores. And every year, they ask for more money. So Ian, at the meeting, makes a proposal, something he'd been planning. I stood up and I said, what we're being presented with is a ransom, not a budget. I think, instead, the town should present them with a budget. You have a certain amount of money and you figure out how to make it work. And so that requires us to pick a number. Let's change it from $1.7 million to 800000 I move that that be the budget number. Ian was proposing cutting the budget by more than half, basically blowing up the system. Jim, who in the past had been shot down proposing much smaller cuts, knew Ian was going to do this, and he was ready. When he made his motion, a bunch of us rushed to second it. A good four or five people jumped in to second it. it was, there was an enthusiasm about, yes, let's do this, let's have this discussion. Tom Moore, the school board member with the wooden pens, who has three kids in school, started to panic. And that's when I started really trying to speak to the audience. And I, I pointed out, look, if you cut this down to 800000 this budget just does not work. And I'm looking around the room and I'm kind of trying to suss out, okay, how many people here are going to you know, shut this down? And I'm not seeing too many of them. And I'm starting to realize, boy, this could go really sideways. Tom texts his wife, get down here, bring everyone you know. But the vote happens too fast. People raise their hands yay or nay. The moderator counts, and the slashed budget passes. 20 to 14. The people of Croydon have spoken. The 4% of them who actually came to the meeting. Later, someone called a lawyer and a state official to see if there was any way to reverse this and learned the vote was binding. He grabbed the bottle of whiskey, poured himself a glass, and, um, and he just said, you have no idea what just happened. This is Tom's wife, Jennifer. Tom's not much of a drinker, so she knew whatever happened was bad. And it was pretty bad for them. The new school budget meant that they and many other parents could have to start paying to keep their kids in public school. And it was a lot of money, potentially up to $9,000 per year per kid. 
That's because Croydon is so tiny, it doesn't have its own middle and high school. So older kids go to school in nearby bigger towns, and Croydon covers that tuition. But with the budget cut so drastically, the town could only afford to pay half the tuition at some of those schools. So parents would have to make up the difference. For Tom and Jennifer, sending their three kids to one of the medium-priced public schools, that'd be about $20,000 a year. That's money they don't have. A lot of families here don't. Like, we're going to have to look for another place to live because we're not going to be able to afford our sending our kids to school. I mean... And that's a conversation we never thought we would we've ever We've never had, had that, you know. For Tom, this cut happy. felt like a violation of a basic tenet of our democracy. It baffles me. Like, it just... I don't understand it. I don't get it. I mean, we decided this, I mean, centuries ago. I I mean, we decided it ages and ages ago that this is what we should be doing as a country. We need to provide students with an adequate education through taxation. There were some alternatives to paying to send your kid to public school. The school board said kids could enroll in a learning pod instead, managed by private companies It'd be a mix of in-person and online learning, and it was cheap enough to fit within the slashed budget. Tom says this would be a crap show. His kids didn't do well with online learning during the pandemic. They felt distracted and isolated. Meanwhile, members of the Free State Project were going online and celebrating, saying, look at Croydon. This is how we slash taxes and transform public education. Croydon parents saw this kind of thing on Facebook and felt like, all of a sudden, their kids were part of some experiment, and they were pissed. Well, I'm going to call this meeting to order at 6.31. Here's some tape from a school board meeting, post-budget cut. It's a mom talking about her son. And he's a senior next year. And if that's taken away from him after the last two years, I can't handle it. I can't do it. He cannot hurt the kids. That meeting, significantly better attended. These parents had been told the budget cut was binding, but they thought there must be some way out of this. They started calling around, going down internet rabbit holes, looking for an escape route. Because democracies are never as simple as just a bunch of people voting. There's always a clause somewhere, a guardrail for Americans against themselves. And then, and it's not exactly clear who found it, A lot of people say it was this woman, Lorraine. But in any case, parents land on something. Buried deep in New Hampshire's state law, RSA 197-2. It basically says that they can petition to hold a special meeting where the town gets another chance to vote on the school budget. But it's a long shot. Not only would parents have to win the revote, the revote would only count if half of Croydon's registered voters show up and cast a ballot. That's 283 people. For Tom, who used to be on the Croydon school board, that number seemed impossible. It's a big number. It's a very small town. We've never, ever, ever had that many people show up to vote on something. He says the school board was lucky if five or six people came to watch. After I heard about this revote, I decided to stick around Croydon because I really could not tell what would happen. And because this seemed like a test for some big questions a lot of Americans are asking about the future of public schools and our democracy. 
Slashing the school budget to $800,000 would save each household in Croydon an average of $2,000 a year. And this town leans conservative, went for Trump. A lot of people, they want lower taxes and minimal government. And the question of the school budget was not going to be decided with PAC money or TV ads, but the old-fashioned way. Neighbors talking to neighbors, people they actually know, to try to persuade them, one by one. They needed 283 voters to show up in person, and they had a tight deadline, about 40 days. One thing about democracy the Founding Fathers forgot to tell us, it can be a real pain in the ass. To reverse the budget cut, a group of mostly public school parents put their lives on hold. The first three weeks were an organizing frenzy. Meetings, constant Facebook messaging. They ordered lawn signs and hand-painted bigger ones that they stuck in the back of pickup trucks and put all over town. There were two moms at the center of this. Sisters. Twin sisters, actually. Angie and Amy, who I spent a lot of time with. Amy is the one you heard in that town meeting talking about her high school son. A month and a half after the meeting in March, with just one week to go before the revote, Amy and Angie are driving from house to house, trying to convince people to come to the revote. They've never done a campaign like this before. We're bad at this. We're like, we're like, they say, we're not registered voters. Okay, that's fine. Angie and Amy grew up in Croydon. Their car has an American flag tinted on the back window. They've been well-liked since they were kids. In high school, Amy got voted best all around. Angie, most sarcastic. The Freaks, they're called. That's their family's last name. I kept my name. I married my wife, Callie, took my name. Freak. So we're freaks. And everybody knows us, and I love it. Everybody knows. They go to visit a guy named Brian, whose mom is there. We're we're going around canvassing, making sure everybody's going. You're going. Yes, we're going. You're going. So that's one yes. Brian, you're the best. Grandma Edie, you're going next Saturday, right, to the meeting? I love you. Two, actually. Be careful. Yes. But at another house? I wanted to. Okay. But I have to work. Okay. Okay, that's okay. Was, I will call was, out for you. I will call them and say, she is so busy today. If there was a way that I could vote and not be there, yeah. I would. Yeah. And then they go to the house of someone they grew up with, yeah. Nick Avery. Yeah. Their kids went to school together. We are out chatting with people about coming to the meeting on Saturday, and I know that you guys are up in the air about it. I'm not up in the air about it. I'm not going. You're not going. Okay. Can well, you tell me why? just my choice. Okay. Okay. I don't want any hard feelings in this little town. Yeah. So. Okay. I, I, do you think the vote's going to make hard feelings? I still love you. No, I, I think <laughs> I think me not going could. Before they went out door knocking today, Angie and Amy got advice from a professional campaign organizer that if someone says no, just move on. Reasonable advice. They ignore it. I've lived here my whole life, so have you guys. Well, yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely. Just, it's just it's so honestly weird. a little disappointing just because I'm going to have to pay for Caleb for his senior year, you know? I get it. I get it. I don't think that's fair. I'm not saying it's fair. Do you think because we didn't go vote, we weren't there at the meeting, that that's why you're... Oh, yeah, she didn't go. I didn't go to the meeting. I got my hands full. I, I will never miss another meeting, I tell you what. I'll be honest with you, $1.7 million is way too much for this town. Mm -hmm. Nick starts talking about Croydon's one-room schoolhouse, still in operation. 
which he and the sisters went to as kids. He doesn't get why it needs so many more staff and resources these days. Uh, you know, when we were there, we had two rows for, for first grade, two rows for second grade, and two yep. rows for third grade. We had a teacher that assigned stuff, and we had an aide an aid or two yep. aides yep. to help out with the yep. kids. I remember that. We yeah, absolutely me too. did. No, can I? Can I? You, can you I, say anything you want. No, I want to mm -hmm. ask you a question. So, 1.7 is too much. We're operating at 1.5 right now, mm -hmm. right? Yep. They cannot operate what they're trying to do with the 800,000. Right. We, we, between... we all know that the state of New Hampshire is not going to allow kids not to go to school. Do you honestly think that come fall, you're going to have to pay nine grand out of your pocket to send your kid to school? Yes. But it's a public school. They're not going to turn the kid away. It's, they're not going to get to the school and the, the principal's going to come out and go, oh, sorry, little fellow, you you, you got to go home because you're a Croydon kid. Sure that if we don't pay, that's what they're going to do. Do you want me to find I, that out? For, do you want me to call Newport? I just, I can't for I mean, the life of me believe. This that is what I'm going to do. The, just, just so we can continue this conversation. I'm going to call the Department of Revenue tomorrow and speak with a representative there. And I meant to ask them this this past week, actually. So I'm glad that you brought this up. But the other the other problem is, is people around here have watched that budget go up and up and up and up. Right. And well, nobody's just... really said much till now. And right. now it's everybody's crying wolf. Listen, so if they had cut it by 200000 this this would not be happening. Honestly, a $200,000 cut would not change. There's a turkey right there. <laughs> Did you go out this morning? May in New Hampshire is wild turkey hunting season. By the end, the, the sisters have spent 30 minutes with Nick. It doesn't move them any closer to their magic number of 283 voters. But it's something you don't see much these days. People who don't agree actually talking to each other and listening. And it was nice to hear. Thank you, Nick. Sorry to interrupt your work. It's all right. Next time I'll put you to work. All right. She said. By the way, Angie and other parents did talk to neighboring school districts about whether they'd let in Croydon students for half price. And they were basically told, no way. Meanwhile, the other side has a way easier campaign ahead of them. Because the only thing the budget cutters need people to do is nothing. Just skip the meeting. That way, the revote won't meet quorum, and it won't count. To reinforce this message, the man who proposed the budget cut back in March sends out mailers. They say, if you like the budget you have, you can keep it. Just stay home on May 7th. Jim Peschke, the budget nerd who'd been trying to cut the budget for years, is feeling pretty confident. I think there's a, a false narrative that, that a, a bunch of kooks voted for this budget and the whole town is against it. I don't think that's true. And... The problem with the getting people to go is there's only a handful of people in Croydon who truly benefit from the higher budget. The way he sees the math, there are only 80 or so kids in the school district. So sure, their families will show up to restore the budget. But he doesn't think they'll get enough of their neighbors to join them. The numbers and the updated uh, calling list tomorrow, I know we've got... The it's Wednesday, May 4th, three days till the revote. Um, some of the parents organizing, who call themselves We Stand Up for Croydon, gather in private, start tallying up the confirmed numbers. They want to know how close they are to 283. Xandra, do you want to talk a little bit about um, 
our updated list. Um, we look at 275 um, supporters ID'd so far, 236 who can attend. So that's a big drop that's terrible. Um, that's Angie have, saying it's uh, terrible. They need about 50 more. The next day is the final push, the phone bank. Can we call Brenda and Roderick and just confirm I have called, texted, and Facebook messaged Brad with no response. Angie's here in her go-to outfit, t-shirt, jeans, eyeliner, and mascara. There's not good cell phone service in Croydon, so the volunteers have gone to a nearby town, ordered pizza, they have a big list of names, and they start making calls. Angie's focused. She rubs her temples a lot. There's a problem with the list of names. Well, the tricky thing is we don't know if there's duplicates. The majority of volunteers here are, surprise, surprise, moms. Most have jobs and kids who are currently in school. They've disagreed on some things in the past, like mask mandates. But when it comes to funding public schools, they're all on the same page. One of them is Amanda Leslie, mom of two, English teacher, who also grew up here. Usually when she and I talk about the budget cut, she uses a lot of colorful language. But when she gets on the phone, she puts on her teacher hat. She calls a family she's known for years. Can I, can I tell you a little bit of new information? No? Okay. Um, would Ed be willing to talk with me since he will be there? Super, that'd be great. Hey, Ed, how are you doing? Good. Um, I understand you're going to help out at the meeting on Saturday as a ballot clerk. Can I ask, are you going to also vote while you're there? You're not going to vote? Oh, I'm so disappointed. Um, right, but even though it's a legal thing? I hear you. I hear. I, I absolutely hear that. You know, I was there too. It, it certainly was legal, but there, there is this opportunity to, you know, within the democratic process, um, to revisit it. And I mean, do you think you could tell me that you'll think about it? Okay. Well, again, I'm, I'm disappointed, but thank you for talking with me, Ed. All right. I'll see you Saturday. Break my freaking heart. My producer, Chris, is with Amanda when she ends the call with Ed. Is it easier or harder when you know them? Oh, I think it's more heartbreaking. <laughs> you know, like these people that, uh, like, I've known the entire time I've lived in Croydon, and my in laws, they've known them for 40, 50, 60 years, you know, and it's just really sad. <laughs> Especially because I know that they're good people. They're not total a-holes, you know. The guy Amanda was on the phone with, Ed, he had concerns I've heard from other people in town. They don't think the May 7th revote is fair. The town already made its decision in March. If people wanted to be part of the budget process and ensure their kids' school got funded, why didn't they show up then? May 6th, the evening before the revote. The parents just finished setting up the space, a YMCA camp, which is the biggest venue in the area they could find. The Croydon Town Hall couldn't fit 283 people. Angie is in the parking lot, headed to her SUV. She has a new concern. 
She just heard that her opponents want to make a presentation before the vote. Wait, so when did you guys find out that Aaron is giving a presentation? Today, tonight, at here. <laughs> just found out the moderator is who let us know. This presentation is totally allowed, but Angie wonders if it's a tactic to run the clock so people will leave before the vote. Because at what point are you worried that people are going to start leaving? Um, probably an hour or an hour and a half in, I think, that people will start losing interest. And, I mean, they have other things to do, Le- legit other things to do. We have people that have funerals in Escutney, Vermont. We have people that have weddings. We have people that have college graduation in Keene. Um, I mean, we can't ask them to sit here for hours and hours. It's just... And she's also a bit frustrated because some people don't have plans, but are like... I don't know if I can find two hours to spare to come. And Angie feels she and other moms have been working nonstop to save Croydon's public school system. Angie's accumulated stress, it reached a breaking point when she and some volunteers were setting up today. And so I had a minor meltdown. And What did that look like? No tears. Um, some frustration enough so that people thought I needed a hug. Wait, what did you say? Well, my sister said, what do you need from us right now? I said, I need everyone to shut the fuck up. That's what I said, if you want to be frank about it. Angie's not sleeping great. I'll send her a text in the middle of the day, get a response at 3 a.m. the next morning. Angie tells me she's still feeling optimistic, but no one knows how tomorrow will play out. Here's Jennifer, Tom's wife. She tells me she's not sure it's going to work. I think it's going to be so close. I think it's going to be within a vote or two. And that's why we so desperately are reaching out to anyone we can. And it could go either way, honestly. Her husband, Tom, feels the same. The other side seems much more relaxed. I'm going turkey hunting. This is Jim Peschke talking about what he's going to do tomorrow during the revote. He's come up with a metaphor. I've heard it before at a school board meeting. And, uh... If, if you're not familiar, I'll be sitting there with a call trying to trick the turkeys into coming towards me under the promise of finding a hen. And I can only speak from theory because I have yet to take one. I'm a lousy turkey hunter. But I think uh, we're going to both be coming home empty-handed on the 7th. Get it? He won't get a turkey, and the parents won't get their big budget back. Finally, the day of the vote, May 7th. Voters are lined up at the registration table by 8 a.m. It's cold. There's no heating in the hall, but there's a fireplace roaring at one end. For every democratic process, there are rules, and often a public official responsible for enforcing them. Here, it's the moderator, a man named Bruce Jasper. Today's his first time moderating a town meeting. And if Angie were hoping this would go quickly, it's not looking good. No, uh, just a little little bit about me. I was born in Nashua, New Hampshire. I'm the oldest of four children, brought up on a poultry farm. My first job was uh, a paper route, delivering the Nashua Telegraph on my bicycle. To be clear, he's not trying to run down the clock. He just seems really into being the moderator. He gives the number of chickens on his childhood farm, the number of people in his graduating high school class. Uh, currently... Um, I'm a member of the Newport Rotary Club, where I've been secretary for the last 38 years, and also on the board of Wags and Wiggles, 
uh, a dog rescue uh, organization in Newport. At first, people figure maybe Bruce is stalling to give stragglers time to find their seats. But pretty soon, it's 9.20 a.m., and people are getting antsy, glancing at each other. Wait, this is the school budget revote, right? Bruce eventually transitions from his biography to the rules for the proceedings. He loves a good rule. The, uh, the articles uh, to be considered... Yep. I am, I am reading my, all of the rules... So that everybody, I don't know. I mean, if everybody has a copy of the rules and everybody is, okay. I will stop here. I don't, I don't Someone know. eventually shouts out, move on. Angie and Tom give their presentation. And then. We have two student speakers that have very brief um, statements that they would like to make. If we can have them come up and as long as no one opposes. Okay. And again, I'm. The request is supposed to come through the moderator. All right. <clears throat> Again, it's, it's in the rules, and I know everybody said they read it, and they all know them. Um, Tell me what you need me to do, Bruce. I am asking you to please allow the student speakers to be a part of our presentation. So th- the procedure would be to ask the moderator to allow somebody to speak. Will you allow them to speak? So, Angie, yes. Okay, so if you're asking me... Can Bruce, we allow may I the... please have a student speaker speak right now during our presentation? And the answer is yes, if it's informational. So my ruling is yes. Thank you. The two high schoolers, one after another, deliver their speeches. Parents had this plan a while ago. Let the kids have their say. It's about their future. But sticking to it is kind of surprising, given how anxious they are about time. I find Angie's sister, Amy, near the breakfast buffet. I'm preparing to take is this next year to take two college hope? classes along with advanced case of literature um, and pre-calculus. When not I first really. SMHS, I, was shy and I, I already so wanted to be in line to vote. What time is it right now? 9.35. 9.35. When are people going to start leaving? I play two varsity sports, uh, volleyball, ten. and softball, again learning teamwork mm-hmm. and dedication. Yes. And I hope to obtain to- scholarships. What do you think is going through Angie's head Sunday right now? Has excellent, excellent Hurry the programs. fuck up. What's <laughs> going through your head? Some the same thing. Like, I love all these kids, but let's just do that. We all know why we're here. We don't need a boost. We all know. I am one face of the future of Croydon. I implore you to support me in having the same opportunities that many of you have. A bit later, the other side, the people who want to stick with the budget cut, makes their presentation. It's pretty short, 15 minutes. Toward the end, people applaud early to try to usher the guy off stage. With that, I will wrap up. And I do have hard copies of this presentation. Um, if anybody wants to help circulate these. All right, come on, come on, come on, come on. I appreciate it, Bruce. And finally, 70 minutes in, it's time to vote. People form a long line to put their ballots in the box. It's the OG Croydon ballot box, by the way. Wooden from the 1890s. Angie's standing in shock, taking this all in. And guess who she sees? Nick Avery, the guy who she and Amy spent half an hour talking with during their door knocking. Nick and his wife and his daughter, who registered today, are here. Whoa. Were you expecting that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm amazed that they came. I feel like the Grinch. My heart's grown three sizes today, Sarah. (laughs) All right. 
And seeing nobody else in line that's ready to vote, the voting is now closed. The room starts clearing out quick. Volunteer clerks begin counting votes. Tom is giddy. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Easy, Ange. Easy, Ange. What's up? Angie comes up to him. There's a problem. He said we have too many votes. He said we have too many votes. What do you mean we have too many votes? I don't votes? know. What does that mean? I don't know. That doesn't make any sense. The total number of votes appears to be six more than the number of people who checked in at the door and received ballots. Some people start wondering, was it a counting problem or something sneakier? Maybe the other side slipped in some extra ballots to invalidate the vote? Was that their trick? Are you fucking kidding me? I don't want people to think that this isn't legitimate. They're going to get on Facebook and say, oh, they cheated, they... But I don't know what the moderator is going to rule. He may rule we have to vote again, and if that's the case, we don't have 283 people here anymore. In case anyone needed another reminder that democracy is unpredictable, here we are. The voters who cast their ballots, some of them have left. And if there's a redo today, it definitely won't make quorum. Meanwhile, the moderator, Bruce, is on the phone with someone from the New Hampshire Secretary of State's office. Oh my God, I think we might have lost it. Because of Because of this? Yep. And then, finally, Bruce is back at the mic. We, uh, we, we had a little discrepancy uh, between the number of ballots cast and the number of um, people that checked in, voters that checked in. However, that's now been rectified. So the, the final vote was 377 yes. <laughs> uh, and two no. So. They got what they needed and nearly 100 more. Someone just counted wrong the first time. It's a landslide. I take a motion to adjourn. Mr. Motion to adjourn. to adjourn. Second. Second. All those in favor. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh my God. Thank you so much. People are hugging and high fiving. Angie reaches out to shake hands with a guy she's known for years. They mess with the wrong town, he tells her. They, meaning the budget cutters, and the libertarians who championed this. Just a few of them are here, and they don't look happy. We called up Jim Peschke, the guy who spent the morning turkey hunting. He didn't catch one. Here's what he said about the revote. It was a very well-run, very effective campaign on their part. I know they did a lot of work, and uh, they were able to get their message through, which I found very surprising. So he accepts the results, even though he doesn't agree with them which in 2022 is not always something you can count on. And some of the budget cutters, they're not done. They lost the battle this year, but aren't abandoning their mission. Many parents told me that this scare, it woke them up. They're continuing to organize, run for office, show up to meetings. A few days later, the Croydon School Board met. A lot of people came out. And frankly, it was uneventful, long, tedious, And sitting there, I wondered whether people will keep showing up year after year when there isn't a crisis. 
Because ultimately, how much time are most of us willing to give to democracy? Sarah Gibson of New Hampshire Public Radio. That story produced by Chris Benderev. Coming up, murderous snails tear through an island, leaving a trail of carnage. That's in a minute. From Chicago Public Radio, when our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program, I work better on deadline. Stories of how deadlines can release an explosion of energy from people who never would have taken action any other way to fix problems that probably should have been addressed long before. We've arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, Snail in the Coffin. So um, I think of myself as a, a not terribly industrious person who happens to have organized his life around a very unforgiving uh, weekly deadline. And really, only because of the deadline, I'm filled with enough terror to finish stories and get a radio show on the air with a coherent uh, beginning, middle, and ending to it week after week with a team of people. Without the deadline, I really would never be anywhere as productive. But the stakes of this whole thing are really pretty low, right? If I and my coworkers, if we don't turn out a new show, like, so what? One less radio episode in the world. Nobody suffers. Nothing dies. The world continues as it was. Not so for the people in this next story. David Kestenbaum explains. This is a terrible way to start a story, but it's a fact. I've been kind of obsessed with extinctions recently. Sure, the dinosaurs, because who doesn't like a good asteroid extinction? Maybe it was a comment. There's also the Permian mass extinction, which wiped out over 80% of stuff in the sea. Totally fascinating. I think I'm interested because of this idea that now we may be living through another mass extinction, one we are causing. According to the international organization that tracks this stuff, one in eight bird species are threatened, a fifth of all reptiles, a quarter of all mammals, and plants... 40% of all plant species could disappear. 40%. It's hard to get your head around that. But I sort of feel like I should. Even before this, I did this thing. I regularly tried to imagine my parents' deaths, just to be prepared. And my own death, which is a kind of personal extinction. It's a way of getting used to the idea of things ending. You can also try to imagine the extinction of democracy. See? It's a fun game. This, of course, is an entirely theoretical exercise on my part. But there are people who actually stare into the abyss of it, of things facing extinction, and try to do something. In talking to people, I found this one story I think has never really been told. It's about a snail, one single species of all these in trouble, and this chain of really kind of ingenious people who are determined to save it. The story starts with Justin Gerlach, who now is a fellow at Cambridge University, but in 1992, a grad student standing on the island of Raiatea in the middle of the Pacific, lush, tropical place with cliffs, looking for this snail. Kind of famous in snail circles. Its fancy name, Parchula faba. I call it Captain Cook's bean snail. How come? Uh, Because it was discovered on Captain Cook's expedition, and faba means bean. Did he call it that? No. No, he didn't call it anything. (laughs) Sadly, but not surprisingly, he says... Captain Cook never wrote anything in his diaries about the snail. It was named afterward. Scientists ended up learning a lot about genetics from Parchula snails years later. This one, particularly kind of dignified, as snails go, about an inch long, 
So it's a really nice looking shell. It's the most beautiful of the Parchula species. Very nice, deep yellow color with a dark tip to the shell. And sometimes they've got dark bands on them as well. Really handsome snail. The snail, when Justin got to the island, was in trouble because of us. Justin told me the story with a kind of professorial calm. He's had a front row seat to species extinction for a while now. What happened, he says, is that at some point, a different snail had been brought to the island. The giant African land snail. Basically a garden pest, he says. It got out of control, and the solution to that problem was to introduce another snail, a predatory one, that people hoped would eat the African land snail. It's kind of crazy that they had, they had one out of control snail, so they introduced yeah. a second snail yep. to eat yep. the first snail. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you can see where this is going. The new snail had no interest in this assignment. Because it, basically, it didn't like the giant African snail. They're too big, they're too leathery, uh, so it doesn't eat them. It likes the, the little forest snails instead. Including Captain Cook's bean snail. Climate change for sure is putting a lot of species in danger. But most creatures on the endangered list, they're there for reasons like this. Much more basic stuff. We cut down some forest to farm or build homes. We catch too many fish. Or we bring some foreign snail to an island. So Justin's on the island to rescue any survivors he can find. He heads out and gets to this one valley where the invading snails had apparently just swept through, maybe a week before. And it was just completely littered with hundreds of empty shells. And some of them were still damp from where they'd been eaten by the predatory snails. He had this thought. Maybe actually I've been too late. Just that little bit too late. There's was like a massacre or something. Yeah, oh, very much a massacre. Uh, slow motion massacre, but nonetheless. That's snails are slow joke number one for this story. There'll be another. How can they be so good at killing every last snail? Oh, they're extremely efficient predators. Uh, so they're very good at picking up the chemical cues left behind by the slime trails. So they track them down like a bloodhound, essentially. And then they're, they're very good, perfectly evolved killing machines, really. If it seems hard to imagine how an animal with no arms or hands or claws or talons whose name is appropriately synonymous with slowness, can kill anything at all? I found a video online. It's gruesome. The predatory snail just kind of sucks the other snail out of its shell while it struggles to fight back. Justin does find one, one bean snail in that valley. He puts it in a plastic container, and then, a piece of luck, he finds an old vanilla plantation the predatory snails hadn't reached yet. And there are dozens of bean snails. You got there just in time. Just in time, yes. That, it must have been weeks or months before that valley got eliminated. And with that, Justin found himself in a remarkable position. He had some of the very last of a species that had been around for a million years, the last on Earth. After Justin collected the snails, he packed them up and took them on a plane. The snails rode in the overhead bin. He checked them from time to time. The snails that Justin collected, along with some others that had been gathered the previous year, were sent to a handful of places that could care for them. The plan was simple. If you could get them to breed, then you go from tens of snails to hundreds, thousands, and you can put them back in nature. 
Some of the snails were sent to the Bristol Zoo. Visitors would walk right by them. No idea they were looking at what could be the last of their kind on Earth. Melissa Bushell was one of the keepers in charge of them in the hopes that their numbers would increase. And I have to say, kind of the perfect person to try to pull this thing off. Dedicated, methodical, and, aside from a detour as a bartender, she can trace this career choice way back. Melissa recently transitioned, by the way. She asked that we share that. Yeah, since I was about maybe, I don't know, probably about two or three or four. Uh, I just always liked bugs and reptiles and fish and animals that weren't fluffy, basically. So, yeah, it's always been a bit of a passion. Wait, how come not fluffy? Well, everyone else liked the fluffy things like monkeys and tigers, and I kind of felt bad for for the bugs and the you know the things that people thought were a bit ick. So, you know, they needed somebody to like them as well. Melissa, usually listening to classical music on the radio, would tend to the snails, feed them twice a week a mixture of porridge oats, trout food pellet, and cuttlebone ground into a powder. Change out the sheet of plastic wrap that covers the top of the glass boxes they were in, and see if their numbers would increase. Melissa spent a lot of time watching them. There's a little dance they do when they mate. Oh, it's super cute to watch. What's the dance like? Very slow. (laughs) Told you. They kind of just end up sort of circling each other, and I'm sure each species does it slightly differently, but then one of them will sort of climb on next to the other one, and then they will touch their necks together because that's where the genitalia is, and they'll um, sort of mate that way. Genitalia is on the neck. They really are like alien species. Mm-hmm. That's why I like invertebrates so much. Um, they're just weird, but good. <laughs> then, a few weeks later, a baby would be born. Just the size of a period you might write with a pencil at the end of a sentence. So the breeding was working, but there was a problem. Um, give me a second. I can tell you exactly how many we had. So when I started, we had 80 of them. We went from 80 at the end of 2010 to 60 in March 2011. Um, 61 in June 2011. (laughs) Uh, September 2011, 52. The snails were reproducing, but not fast enough to replace the ones that were dying. No one could figure out why. I want to be sure you get a picture of just how much effort and expertise went into this. It was a whole team of people. They did kind of autopsies of each snail when it died, taking them out of their shells, preserving them, slicing them, looking at them under a microscope. They even reached out to Justin, who'd rescued the last ones on the island as a grad student. Justin, thinking maybe there was a problem with the diet, went back to an old museum collection that had snails preserved from over 100 years ago. Surprisingly, he found ants in some of their stomachs, But they determined the snails probably weren't feeding on ants. The snails probably had just eaten fruit that had ants in it. No one had any idea what was wrong. Their numbers continued to drop without explanation. By May 2014, we were down to 17. Oh. Yeah. And then June 14. Oh. And then down to 9 on the 16th of uh, September 2014. Uh, And then that's when they went to Edinburgh. Edinburgh Zoo. If there was anywhere that could save them, it was Edinburgh. Like if the president were sick, that's where you'd send him, if he were a snail. Years before this, Edinburgh Zoo had been sent a single snail, the very last of its kind in captivity. Just one. A subspecies called Parchula teniata simulans. They kept it alive and somehow 
it was pregnant, gave birth, and soon there were hundreds and hundreds of them, and they were put back in the wild. Melissa was full of worry, though. Said when the last bean snails went up to Edinburgh Zoo in a van, it felt like handing off a grenade that the pin had just been taken out of. The situation these people were in with the bean snail, where you know you have the last ones in your hands, it's very rare. More often, we just don't know if something's gone extinct. Usually scientists suspect something in the wild has disappeared, but there's a long process of searching and surveying to determine, yes, it's really gone. The standard is, when there's no reasonable doubt, the last individual of the species has died. This year, six new things were officially designated as extinct. The Chinese paddlefish, three Moroccan freshwater fish, a tree from Asia, and a fly from the UK, last seen in 1907. But they weren't there yet with the bean snail. The nine remaining snails arrived to Edinburgh Zoo. The snails were not put on display, but were kept instead in a quiet room, an old coal shed, actually, where that other single snail had come back from the brink. Ross Poulter, who helped take care of them, told me he thinks the light there is perfectly dim, like it would be in the forest. He said he felt the kind of awe being in there with them. You know, you can be in that room on your own, you know, looking after these snails, and you peel back the, the cling film on the lid to reach in, and you're actually feeding the, the, the last individuals. That's it. He wondered, what would it be like if you had the last elephant? Within a year, eight of the snails had died, which meant they were down to one snail, the last bean snail. Some snails can reproduce without a mate, basically impregnate themselves. Every time he went in there, Ross would check to see if there was a baby. A month went by, this one snail just doing its thing, no baby. Two months, three months, six months. I remember when I I went in there to do my morning checks, and uh, it was quite clearly dead. And I do remember just standing there looking at it, thinking, it's actually very sad, you know? It's, uh, it's, it, was, it was quite thought-provoking. He thought about how the famous British explorer, Captain James Cook, had been there at the beginning. And now, at the other end, him, Ross Poulter, looking at the last one. Um, so you have all those kind of thoughts. And I was in there on my own, and nobody else at that moment knew about it. I still remember vividly the day that they brought that last snail up in, in, a, in a little alcohol tube to preserve it for posterity, and it just everyone was heartbroken. This is Joe Elliott, who was overseeing things. I mean, at the time, you get on with it, you're professional, you deal with it, but that, that snail, I kept it on my desk for a long time as a, as a reminder of what it is we're trying to do and what we're trying to avoid. Was that the first thing you'd worked with that you'd actually watched to go extinct? Yep, that's the only thing I've worked with that that um, yeah. I've I've seen go extinct in that way. Um, it's quite a life-changing experience. Yeah, I feel like, you know, it says something about our species that we're in this position in the first place. Yeah, absolutely, because this was an entirely man-made situation. Um, but it also says something that there are so many people trying so hard yep. to keep them alive. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. 
yeah, both sides of the coin. As far as I can tell, the end of the snail that had been around for a million years, other than a handful of people, nobody noticed. No stories in the papers or online. I'd wanted to know what it was like to come face to face with extinction. Ross knew. When the last one died, Ross was the one who put it in the glass jar. It's his neat handwriting on the side that says P. Faba for Parchula Faba, last known individual, he wrote. I asked if he'd managed to absorb what had happened. He said, I don't know how to answer that. Even when you see it up close, it's hard to understand. It's too big. It's not on our timescale at all. You'd have to somehow be able to imagine snails being born one generation after another for like a million years, and then it's stopping. In Ross's case, on some Sunday at the office before your very eyes. What are you supposed to do after that? We're so used to stories about people on deadline facing one last chance to save things and figuring out some way at the last moment. But I think the truth is, when you get to the point where things are so desperate that you're down to one last chance, it's rarely a good one. I know, that's a terrible way to end a story. But it's a fact. David Kestenbaum is our show's senior editor. Tried to hit a buzzer beater before the clock ran out. Desperation shot to see if this could work somehow. There's no packed arena standing up and cheering loud. It's just me and all the ways I'm ready for you now. It's a Hail Mary, I'll bet it all that you don't want to see me now. I'll take my shot in the dark. Well, our program is produced today by Sean Cole. People who put together today's program include Elna Baker, Michael Kamate, Valerie Kipnis, Miki Meek, Catherine Raimondo, Michelle Navarro, Stone Nelson, Nadia Raymond, Ryan Rummery, Charlotte Sleeper, Francis Swanson, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, and Diane Wu. Our managing editor, Sarah Abdurrahman. Our executive editor is Emmanuel Barry. Special thanks today to Maria Holenhorst, Craig Hilton Taylor, Justine Paradise, Jack Rodolico, Katie Culinary, Ed Spiker, Dan Barrick, Maureen McMurray, Stephen Anderson, Susan Solomon, Robert Watson, Joseph Steed, and Jim Baker. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. Where you can stream our archive of over 750 episodes for absolutely free. Also, there's videos, there's lists of favorite shows if you're looking for something to listen to. Tons of other stuff there. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, we were at the car rental place the other day, waited in line forever. The rental people were so rude. Finally, Tori just lost it, said we're going somewhere else. Avis, Enterprise, Hertz, any place but this place. This budget just does not work. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. I think I must be dreaming At least just wishful thinking It just might all work out As the crowd